So Leviticus chapter 25, starting at verse 8. Okay. It says this, Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee and they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price. When the years are few, you are to decrease the price. Because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Rowan's going to come and speak to us. I might just pray. So please pray with me. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can study it together. I pray that as we learn from Rowan today, you will be opening our hearts to understand more of who you are and more of who we should be as your people. Amen. I have three independent facts for you. Three independent facts. But together they tell what I find to be a confronting story. Fact number one. Just a few weeks ago, May 22nd to 24, uh, a particular person who just finished their university degree decided to celebrate with his friends. Now, this particular person who graduated from university happened to be a Saudi prince. That may have affected the particular celebration he went on. He invited 60 of his close personal friends to come celebrate with him, the finishing of his degree. And what they did was he hired out Euro Disney, Disneyland in France, for three days so he could celebrate with 60 of his friends. He dropped a cool, in Australian dollars, a cool $20 million on that celebration. I don't know what you're planning to cel- how you're planning to celebrate, the finishing of your degree. That's what he... That's fact number one. Fact number two. Tuesday morning, I went onto the World Bank website. Very interesting. You might have gone there. World Bank website, because one of the things that they try to track is poverty around the world. According to the World Bank website on Tuesday morning... There are currently 1.2 billion people today who are living in what they call extreme poverty. That is, they're living on less than $1.25 US a day. 
the way that extreme poverty is described, I'll quote here for you, extreme poverty is described as a condition characterised by severe deprivation of basic human needs. This is not you're just going okay with not much. This is you're, you don't have enough. Severe deprivation of basic human needs. There's 1.2 billion people who today, whilst we sit here in, praise God, much luxury, that's, what that's their life. 1.2 billion people, I can't get my mind around that. That is 50 Australians. Take the entire population of Australia, deprive them all into extreme poverty. 50 Australians, or, or if you like, 250 Sydneys. I, I, just, that's... It's a staggering number of people who today are living in that situation. Fact number two. Fact number three. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, BT, investment service provider, uh, they launched a new investment series that they would like you to to, to buy into, to to use, utilise. They had a particular tagline on the front of the prospectus Uh, It caused a little bit of a ripple, but frankly not much, because what they were really saying, I guess, didn't really disturb people. But this was the line on the front. It said, unleash your savings, it's time to get selfish. That's, That's investment advice for you. Unleash your savings, it's time to get selfish. Three independent facts. Saudi prints $20 million on a celebration. 1.2 billion people living in extreme poverty. Advice to you. How should you live in the world? It's time to get selfish. (coughs) Why am I talking about this? It's because the question as how, as as human beings, but particularly for those who are followers of Lord Jesus, how do we, how ought we be using what we have at our disposal? particularly finances and wealth, how should we be using that? How, are we, how would the one true living God like us to use that? That is a very significant and important question. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a particular chapter in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 25, which is all about a particular Old Covenant Jewish celebration known as the Year of Jubilee, trying to understand what was this year of Jubilee celebration about. We want to then understand it because the Evangelical Union is a, is a Christian organisation that we understand things in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to understand that Old Testament Jewish celebration in the light of Jesus and then see how does it maybe meant to shape us today. How is that Old Testament year of Jubilee wisdom in some sense for us today as Christians? So you're going to need your Bible because we're going to do a little bit of looking in Leviticus 25 but then also maybe moving forward in the rest of the Scriptures. So that will be helpful if you've got it out. And let's um, open to Leviticus 25. We'll start there. You can see some headings up on the board behind me. That may help you as we go along as well. You'll see the first thing I've got up on the board is that what was this year of Jubilee about? It's all about liberation. Leviticus chapter 25, let's jump straight in at verse 10 which we just had read for us says there, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. What were the Israelites, God's Old Testament people, meant to do with this particular year? To consecrate it, make it holy, set it apart as special, different to every other year. And what was it about? Proclaim liberty 
throughout the land. That is, that's what this year of Jubilee was about, liberation. Now, if we read through the rest of the verses carefully, we'll get a sense of what that liberation entailed. Three things in particular, you can see on the board. It meant return, it meant release, and it meant rest. Let's have a look for each of these. First of all, return. See, in the year of Jubilee, everyone returned to their own traditional family land. Have a look halfway through verse 10 there. Each of you is to return to your family property. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in the Old Testament, when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the land that he'd uh, promised to them, the land of Canaan, the land was divided up amongst all the 12 different tribes of the Israelites. Each tribe got an allocation of land and then each family or clan within a tribe got a section of land. And the geographic details are recorded for you in lots of great detail in the book of Joshua, chapters 13 through 21. You can read all of that later. Each family in Israel had its own bit of the promised land and and in particular it was called their inheritance. It was what they inherited from the one true living God. It's what he gave them in which to live. Now the significance of the year of Jubilee was that if as an Israelite you'd come on really hard times and you'd been forced to sell your land, in the year of Jubilee you were just given it back. You might have sold it to somebody, but in the year of Jubilee, with no exchange of money, you just get the land back. It's yours again, which is pretty amazing. I mean, what would that do to an economy? It blows the mind at some level. But that's what it was about, a return to your land. But it wasn't just return, it also meant release if you'd become a slave. Still there in verse 10, each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. See, as an Israelite, if you did come on really hard times and your fellow Israelites didn't help you out, they were meant to, but if they didn't, you could be forced to the terrible situation where you actually had to sell yourself into slavery or become sort of a bonded worker to someone else. And normally, unless someone else then came along and bought you out, redeemed you from that, you were stuck in that for life. But in the year of Jubilee... All the Israelites who were slaves or hired workers were set free. They were liberated, again, without paying a single cent. So that way everyone's free to return to their own family and their own traditional land. And again, there's more details about both of those as you go on through the rest of the chapter. The way I think about it, it's like God hit the great reset button. Um, You know, when your iPad goes completely bonkers and you've tried everything that you can think of to try to fix it, you get desperate, you ring them up, you explain the problem, they say, oh no, this, this is bad. And they say, what you need now to do is to restart the whole thing and they give you some complicated series of instructions to restart the whole thing with the default factory settings. You know, go back to year zero, right? Well, the year of Jubilee is like the one true living God is sort of hitting the reset button for his eye people, right? He's, re- he's restarting it all over again. He's saying, in the year of Jubilee, it's going to be just like when you first entered the land. You have the original bit of land and you're free and it's just like back at the beginning. That's what the year of Jubilee was meant to do. So that's return, that's release, but also there's this third concept of liberation, it's rest. The Israelites were to rest from part of their work. Still there in Leviticus 25, look at verses 11 and 12. The 50th year shall be a Jubilee for you, Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. 
eat only what is taken directly from the fields. Now, if you read from the very beginning of the chapter, you'll actually see that every seventh year for the Israelites, they were to give the land a rest. It was called a Sabbath year. So, in that seventh year, they could harvest what their crops had produced, but they were not to plant anything and they're not to prune any vines because the way you make vines produce fruit next season is you prune them in this season, right? So in the Sabbath year, take what is produced but don't plant anything, don't prune anything. They're to let the land have a rest. And so the Jubilee year is a special example of this Sabbath year except the difference is the Sabbath, the normal Sabbath year was a rest for the land. The Jubilee is a rest, we're told, for the people, for the Israelites. Three times we're told that, verses 10, verse 11 and verse 12. But similar to the Sabbath year, they're not to do any planting or pruning. They're just to take in the regular harvest. Now, if you were an Israelite and you're hearing that, you're going, right, so we're not to plant anything, like a whole season, and not to prune anything, you might be thinking, well, how would, what are we going to eat next year? Right? Well, the Lord anticipates your question there in verse 20. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? And the Lord gives an answer, verse 21. I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. The sixth year will be a superabundant crop from the Lord such that actually you'll be fine. All right? The Lord's going to provide an abundance. Now, I wonder whether that idea of resting and the Lord providing an abundance, whether that rings any bells for you. If you have been with us during this series on Leviticus or maybe you know your Old Testament, it should. It's meant to remind you of what was going on for God's people, the Israelites, as they came out of Egypt. Because as they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, they were to do no work on the Sabbath day, the seventh day of each week, and the Lord provided double on the sixth day so that they didn't need to work on the next. So what you've got, the same principle is at work here. The Lord will provide enough so that you don't need to plant or prune in that seventh year or in the Jubilee year. So when you put all of those things together, right, return to their original lands, release from slavery, rest from sowing and reaping, the year of Jubilee really is like a mini exodus in their experience. See, maybe it wasn't you who came out of slavery in Egypt. Maybe it was like your great-grandfather or your grandmother or you're a, few, you're, you're a descendant, right, for them living in the, in, in the promised land. But every 50 years, at some point, God willing, in your lifetime, there is this year of jubilee which is like a re-experience of the original exodus. You get back to your original lands, you're, you're released and you rest and trust in his abundant provision. It was a way in their actual experience that they, re, they, they, they felt again the great salvation that the Lord wrought for them back when he brought them out of Egypt to make them his own. Okay, so that's a little bit of about this year of Jubilee. Now, here's an interesting question. Uh, it's quite a radical economic situation where suddenly all this land is sort of getting re- redistributed and you're released from your bonded service. And What was it actually like to experience that? 
did Israel ever get around to actually doing it? Well, unfortunately, we don't have any record in the Old Testament of what it was like to experience this year of Jubilee. We're not even, not even sure that they ever actually celebrated it. And that sort of doesn't surprise me too much. And if you know your Old Testament, it probably wouldn't surprise you either because what you realise from the Old Testament is that God's people, despite his love for them and his abundant goodness to them, they continually thumb their noses at him and say, get stuffed, God, we're just going to do things our own way. They do that with such monotonous and astounding regularity that it would not surprise me that if Israel never actually managed to string together 50 consecutive years of obedience such that they actually got up to the year of Jubilee, that would not be a surprise to me. Nevertheless, if if the nation of Israel somehow forgot about the year of Jubilee, what we do know from the Scriptures is that the one true living God never did. He never forgot about the year of Jubilee. Because what you see is this year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25 is then picked up by God. The the idea of it, the concept of it, is picked up by God and he uses that year of Jubilee to communicate the even greater future that he has planned for his people. He uses those ideas. A particular place you can see this is in Isaiah 61. So if you've got your Bible there or the person next to you, flick to Isaiah 61 and have a look at this. So the next heading up there on the board is the year of Jubilee is a basis for Israel's greater future hope. Now Isaiah 61, uh, what's going on in Isaiah 61, a bit of context, um, you might know that when, the, when God's people, the Israelites, did make it into the Promised Land, after a while, the, the kingdom, the, the nation of Israel split into two, unfortunately. There was a northern kingdom, confusingly called Israel, given that they are all Israelites, but there's Israel in the north and there's Judah in the south, two kingdoms. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem, right? That northern kingdom, because they continued to thumb their nose at God and just said, we're just not going to live your way, Lord, eventually, under God's hand, that nation is wiped out by the Assyrians. Ceases to exist. What you're left with is Judah, the southern kingdom, and his capital, Jerusalem. But Judah was no better, and Judah also sort of basically said to God, we're not going to follow your ways. And God says, as a result of that, you are actually going to be sent into exile under the hand of the Babylonians. And he tells them that this is about to happen. And when you get to Isaiah 61, Israel is, oh, sorry, Judah is standing on the precipice of exile, which is a terrifying place to be, about to be kicked out of the very land God had given for you and you're being sent into exile and who knows what will become of you. But even as they're standing on the precipice, God gives them a word of comfort that one day they will return. That's what Isaiah 61 is, right? So now let's jump in Isaiah 61. And and as God gives his people this word of comfort, see if you can hear the echoes of the year of Jubilee, right? Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 7, verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will receive your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. Now, did you pick up some of the echoes of the year of Jubilee? Let me run through them. Verse 2, it's the year of the Lord's favour, right? That's a reference to the year of Jubilee. Verse 1, the captives and prisoners are released. Verse 4... They rebuild the ruined cities. That's a promise of return, right? Return to Jerusalem and rebuild it. In fact, verse 7, they're going to inherit a double portion of the land. Not just get your land back, you're going to get a double portion. This is going to be even bigger than the original year of Jubilee. And what's more, they won't even get to work, they won't even have to work their own fields. It's going to be better than that. No, this time they can rest up because in verse 5, strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. So better than the year of Jubilee, they won't even have to work their fields because others will do it for them. This this is the super Jubilee. This is the year of Jubilee on steroids. This is how God explains the great future that he has for his people. It's going to be better than that year of Jubilee, which you probably never got around to even celebrating, but it's going to be even better than that. So great is the future that I have promised for you. A promise of return, of release and rest. So let me tell you why you need to understand these things. Why do you need to understand about Leviticus 25, Year of Jubilee, and how that's taken up in Isaiah 61 as the future for God's people? Because if you don't get those things, you are going to have a very hard time understanding who Jesus is. Because when Jesus wants to explain to people around him, listening to him, who he is under the hand of God, He uses Isaiah 61 and the year of Jubilee to explain what he is doing under God. So where I want you to go now is to Jesus and the Jubilee, go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Now again, a tiny little bit of context here. Uh, Luke chapter 4, so we're quite right near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as Luke records it for us. And Luke, I think, deliberately has recorded this particular incident and and give it prominence up the front because here is Jesus, in his own words, explaining who he is under the hand of God. So Luke Luke chapter 4, let's read it there from verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read... And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and and here Jesus quotes, right? He reads out Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me 
to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And Jesus began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, any way you spin it, that is an incredibly presumptive thing to say. You know all those great promises of God in Isaiah 61 that as God's people we've been looking forward to for, for hundreds of years, those great promises of return and release and rest, well, it starts today, right here, and I'm the guy. Now, let me just emphasise how crazy that is. If I said to you today, if I said, me, Rowan, I am the current bodybuilding champion of the world, that would be less crazy than Jesus saying, I am the guy at the centre of all of God's plans. It's an outrageous thing for Jesus to say, unless, of course, it's true. Unless, unless he actually was the guy bringing in the great promised future that God had planned, not just for his nation of Israel, but for all of, all of his creatures. And of course, the testimony of the rest of the New Testament, right through Jesus' ministry, climaxing in Jesus' death for the sins of the world and his resurrection under the hand of his heavenly Father to new life, new resurrection life. All of that says, yes, Jesus is the guy. He was right. He is the one in whom God is bringing the return, the release and rest. But as you go through Jesus' ministry and listen to Jesus' teaching, what you realise is actually the return, rest and release is maybe not as they expected initially back in Leviticus chapter 25. Let's think about each of those. Instead of returning to a physical land, through the ministry of Jesus we learn that actually God's plans is, is not just to give his people a bit of grass or ground in, in the Middle East, as great as that would be. His promise is actually to make your inheritance not a bit of dirt, but actually to share Jesus' glory. So the New Testament reflection is in places like Romans 8, that we will be co-heirs, co-inheritors with Jesus of resurrection glory. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that 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 inheritance is kept for us not in the Middle East but kept in heaven for us which can never perish, spoil or fade. So so actually you see that the, the return is actually more amazing when you get to the ministry of Jesus than what was anticipated back in Luke 20, in Leviticus chapter 25. What about release? Back in the year of Jubilee, you were released from slavery or bonded service. Well, actually, in the New Testament, what you realise in the ministry of Jesus is that the slavery that people are released from is not where you have another human master. The slavery that he is releasing all people from is the slavery that all people are under. And you say, well, what slavery is that? Well, slavery is possibly... I'm not under it. 
Well, actually, the testimony of the New Testament is actually that all human beings, without the work of Jesus for us, his death and resurrection, all of us are actually enslaved to what? To the fear of death, we're told, in Hebrews chapter 2. We're enslaved to sin, to that, to that deep-seated sort of wanting desire to thumb the nose of God and say, get stuffed, God, I don't want you in my life. We're enslaved to sin, we're told, in Romans chapter 6. But what Jesus does in, in his ministry, the centre of God's plans, is actually bring release from that slavery that binds every human heart. Well, let's return and release. What about rest? I think about my life, and if you're a Christian person, you think about your life, is your life restful? You finding week 13 at uni particularly restful? A few little quizzes coming up? few little sort of essays you meant to be handing in, how many thousands of words you were trying to produce at the moment. Like, is it restful? Is, if you're a follower, is this rest? <laughs> well, let's think about what sort of rest Jesus brings. Now, we need to ask a clarifying question. When does this year of Jubilee start, according to Jesus? Well, Jesus said it right there. He said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So, the year of Jubilee is not something, the Christian understanding of this eschatological future year of Jubilee, it's not something that now lies entirely in our future. It's not actually talking about life after death. Jesus is saying today, it comes in with Jesus, it starts then. Even though, yes, there's a completion still to come. If you call yourself a Christian person, then you live in the year of Jubilee. That's your life now. You're living in the year of Jubilee. You have that inheritance You've been released from that slavery. How do you rest in that? Well, I mean, back in Leviticus chapter 25, it was, you know, don't prune, don't sow, sit back, rest, enjoy God's provision. Where does that idea go in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus? It goes places like Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says to his followers, he says, and the echoes from sort of the ideas of the year of Jubilee and the Sabbath year are, are strong. Jesus says, why are you worried, speaking to his disciples, why are you worried about what you will eat or what you will wear? That is your future basic needs, just like in Leviticus 25. What are we going to, what are we going to eat if we don't plan? Jesus says, why are you worried about what you'll eat or what you'll wear? It's those who don't know God, who don't know your heavenly Father. It's the nations of the world. They worry about that stuff. They're the ones obsessed with superannuation, securing your future basic needs. Why are you worried about that? Your heavenly Father knows you need them. What's Jesus' advice? What does it look like to rest? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you as well. Sell your possessions, he says. Give it to the poor. It's funny, he could have written the BT ad. Unleash your savings. He just wouldn't have said the second part. It's time to get selfish. He would have said, unleash your savings because you don't need them for the future. Because your Heavenly Father has that sorted. Seek first His kingdom. These things will be given to you as well. Sell your possessions. Give give, Give to the poor because your Heavenly Father wants to give you the kingdom. And you're holding on to a few dollars? That's where the idea of rest goes in the New Testament. Are you living 
as a new, as a, as a Christian in the year of Jubilee, resting in the provision of God. Okay. Um, I think it's what it's worth doing here is reflecting what we've seen is that our year of Jubilee in, in Leviticus 25, as that is sort of caught up in Isaiah 61, helps us point to Jesus and his ministry. Right? We've seen in that Old Testament passage how it's prophecy towards Jesus. But Old Testament is also meant to be wisdom for us. As Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, following, like standing in the light of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, as we look back at Leviticus 25, what, what wisdom is there for us? I just want to point out two things as we come to an end. Two things. And I've got it under the heading of Jubilee Living. How do we live now as Christians in the light of Leviticus 25? We don't have to follow those laws because that, that old law has been sort of repealed now in Christ. But there is wisdom here. Two things. First of all, Jubilee thinking. Very interesting in Leviticus 25, the little bit that we read and you look through the rest of the chapter, their financial dealings with one another were all constrained and done in the shadow of the year of Jubilee. What I mean was if I was going to sell Matt my field we would determine the price based on the number of years to the year of Jubilee. If it was a long time to the year of Jubilee, he would pay more. If it was a short time, he would pay less. Same with if, you, if I, was sort of, I was his slave and someone wanted to buy me out, it, the price would depend on the years to the Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, God's promised future controlled interactions now. It shaped interactions now. Does that make sense? Where does that idea go in the New Testament? Well, actually, when you read the New Testament, it's everywhere. Time and time again, we're told, as God's people in Christ, we are to live today in the light of his promised future. So if you go, say, to, um, yeah, into Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this, he says, The time is short. The present world is passing away. And the implication he draws is that that, that fact radically changes how you process everything in your life. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31, you can look it up later. We think about our life now in the light of God's promised future. Now, I just want to know, does the future that God has promised, that he wants to give you the kingdom, that he's made you a co-heir with Jesus of glory to come, that he's released you from... Has that, has that so, so changed the way you live today? And the decisions you're going to make about what you do after uni change how you decide how you're going to spend your summer, earning the moolah, the dollars, or doing the work of the Lord. Like, does God's promised future shape the decisions you make today? Because that's jubilee thinking. That's how we're to live as his people. But the other idea from Leviticus 25 is jubilee ownership. How come the Israelites couldn't just sell their land permanently? How come every 50 years, if I was a slave, I was automatically released? What, what was the reason? The reason given in Leviticus 25 is because actually everything and everyone belongs to the Lord. So you can see it in verse 23. The land must not be sold permanently because, the Lord says, the land is mine. You reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Or verse 42, because the Israelites, says the Lord, are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. The reason they can't buy one another as slaves is because they, they belong to God. Now, when you jump forward again in the light of the ministry of Jesus, where does that idea go? 
where it goes is saying time and time again in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament call themselves slaves of Christ. I mean, he's a, he's a loving, generous master. How, how generous? He died to save you. That's pretty generous as a master. But we are his slaves bought at a price. Who's the real owner of your stuff? Who owns the dollars in your bank account? Who owns your iPod, your iPad? Who owns your career? Who owns your future? You think, like I think, that we do. Unleash your savings. Whose savings? Your savings. Whose savings? The Lord's savings. We are stewards and tenants. He has entrusted to us his stuff that we might use it not for ourselves but for him. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. The Father wants to give you the kingdom. Jubilee thinking, jubilee ownership, jubilee living because the year of jubilee in Christ Jesus has come. Are you living that way? Do you know his release, the return, the rest of his promise? Have you put your trust in Jesus? You might be obsessed with the exam you've got to sit, the essay that's due in in 10 minutes' time, but... Are you, have you actually taken hold of the return, the release, the rest that Jesus has promised you? And is that now shaping your life? Because you are his. 